0: Two places that you want to be tonight, Genesis 50 and Romans 8, okay? So go ahead and find those two spots. Genesis 50 and Romans 8. So at the end of Genesis uh, 49, we saw, excuse me, Jacob is on his deathbed, and Jacob has been giving prophecy. He's been blessing and charging his sons, and uh, when Jacob... 49.33, finished charging his sons, and that specifically has to do with his burial. He drew his feet into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. I had mentioned last Wednesday, to be gathered to one's people is not necessarily the grave site that you are buried in, but the moment you breathe your last, you're gathered to your people. And that's a beautiful picture that shows up over and over in the Bible. And we talked about to be gathered to one's people is to be at home. Our people is where we feel home. Uh, you know, They say there's no place like home. You go on vacation and you kind of long for a vacation. And you, know, you really want to go and see other places. And then you need a vacation from your vacation. Anybody? And then you get home and you realize, man, I'm, I'm a blessed person to have a home and have these creature comforts that we do. And so to be gathered to one's people is really to be at home. To be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. I go and prepare a place for you. So we talked about that. And the response of Joseph is a beautiful response to his father's death. It's something that we've seen in a man of such strong faith, but he was more than willing to emote, to show his emotions. And Joseph, chapter 50, verse 1, fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. So the moment that Jacob, uh, Joseph's dad, had died, and remember Joseph had a lot of time away from his dad, but then God gave him back 17 years where Jacob got to be reunited with the son that he thought was dead. He got to spend that 17 years with him. I don't know how much time they had direct interaction, but they got to make up some of the time. And when Jacob uh, ended up dying here, Joseph's response, Joseph is the focus of the story, he fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. What we're going to encounter here is a uh, memorial service or a funeral that will take place that will encompass about seventy days of mourning. I just want you to think about that for a second. Can you imagine if uh, you were an employer and your employee came to you and said, "I need some time for you know what do they call it? Grief time. You, know, you get you get time off of work." And they said, I need 70 days off. Now, in our culture, we would think that that person is crazy. We, we would think that's a ridiculous request. How, how could you ask for over two months of leave time? But in this culture, they took mourning very seriously. And in fact, uh, we find in, the, in some other scriptures a little bit later that they would mourn uh, for a period of, I think it's 30 days over Moses and over Aaron. So they took their mourning seriously. And Joseph Notice he falls on his father's face and he weeps over him and he kisses him. Uh, Time time and time again, we see Joseph falling onto people. Uh, Real emotion, there's there's a real uh, desire to connect and touch. Um, It's amazing to me how in the Christian church, I have learned how to hug. Now, I came from a, you could say I came from a huggy family because Italians tend to hug and kiss. And uh, I got a lot of wet kisses and a lot of, grabs to the cheek from ants, oh, look at that boy, oh, look at him. <laughs> Some of you may have relatives like that. But uh, the affection, I think, and, and the willingness to touch is a beautiful thing in Joseph. In Genesis forty six twenty nine, it says, Joseph prepared his chariot, went up to Goshen when he was reunited with his father, Israel. As soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck for a long time. Joseph was not afraid to show emotion and show love, and uh, I think you know for us there's some lessons here from Jewish culture. They're a very uh, embracing, uh, hugging culture. They're not afraid to kiss and hug, and that's okay. I think that's a good thing, and I think it's a healthy thing done uh, obviously appropriately. In Genesis 46.1, if you wanna go back there for a second, there was a prophecy given, and this is just another reminder of the beautiful promises of God. Look at 46, verse one. It says, Israel set out with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba. This is when he's heading now. He's gotten word that Joseph is is alive. He's gonna head to Egypt. He offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. 46, two. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Remember, Jacob is also named Israel. He's renamed Israel. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And notice the promise, and Joseph will close your eyes. In Genesis 50, verse 1, we have the fulfillment of that promise. God reassured Jacob that it was okay for him to go to Egypt, and he told him, look, when you die, Joseph is going to close your eyes. He's gonna be there at your deathbed, and literally, that is what came to pass. And when Jacob finally died, it was, a, it was a very moving moment for the family. He had had a chance to have a deathbed experience, though. Remember, he had a, had a chance to prophesy into his son's lives, and that was a blessed thing. And Joseph, uh, chapter 50, verse two, commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed his father or, or embalmed Israel. Genesis 50, verse 2. Let me just park here for a second. So in, in Egypt, they had an embalming, embalming process where they, that they would go through. And this would, be, this would involve their priests, and I, I would imagine perhaps their physicians as well. But notice that our author Moses tells us twice that it's the physicians that did this and not the religious priests. One writer says in the Egyptian religion under the influence of the cult of Osiris required that the body be preserved so that the deceased could enjoy the afterlife. So every dead body in Egypt was treated with care. But how much attention a body received was determined by how much money the family had. The poor were simply washed and dried in the sun. Some were packed with salt. Those with little or little a little more means were injected with juniper oil to dissolve and ease the removal of organs and the scent of the body before to scent the body before salting. But neither of these options included a mummy wrap. However, the rich got a total redo uh, as well as a body wrap. All organs were extracted, the body was soaked in nitre and then bound in linen and laid uh, for an eternal good time as the author put it. Ah, the life of the rich and pious. And so if you've seen some mummified remains of pharaohs and the like, if you've done some research in this area, you can see the preservation of the body was very major in the life of Egypt. But their ideas about the afterlife were quite bizarre. They had some weird ideas, and they had, as much as they were an advanced culture, you could say with their building projects and their uh, mathematics and all the, The industry that we could see that was happening in Egypt even can see it in the pyramids. They were very like a a weird culture, religiously speaking. They they would uh, honor insects and frogs and rivers and things like that. They had a very weird polytheistic culture. And imagine if you're Joseph. Joseph is gonna die at 110. He was taken into slavery at 17. He spent 93 years of his life in a culture debauched in polytheism, the worship of insects and bugs and rivers and you name it. And often their uh, religious ceremonies involved occult sex and all this kind of stuff. And if you were a bigwig in the culture, you had everything pretty much at your fingertips, anything that you wanted. And from what we can tell from Joseph's life, he resisted all of that. He didn't fall prey to the The temptations. In fact, we see it way back in Potiphar's house when even Potiphar's wife is trying to get him to sleep, you know, get him to sleep with her, and he says no. He was a man of honor, but he was in a very difficult culture. Uh, We've talked about on several occasions that Egypt in the Bible is a type, a picture of the world. And most of us who go out into the world, and I'm not working a secular job anymore, but I, I feel your pain, and I did not go out of college into the ministry, I spent a good amount of time in the secular work environment, and I can feel your pain, and I know how sometimes it feels like Egypt out there. I know how sometimes you, you go from the church to the world, as it were, and you feel like, man, it's very difficult sometimes to fight the temptations and the worldly ways that are out there, but Joseph is a man who was able to accomplish that, and I'll tell you something I learned in the secular workforce, and I'm not saying I always did it correctly, But when I tried to live out my Christian values in the secular work environment, I noticed that most people felt a sense of honor for that. They they saw it as something honorable and not something to make fun of. Now, I know sometimes you catch heat for your views, maybe among secular family and friends. And when I say secular, I'm talking about people who do not embrace the Christian faith. But you know what? I think sometimes they're kind of interested about what we believe and why we believe it. And we often earn the right to be heard by letting our walk and talk align, amen? Amen. So if we say that we're something, be assured people are gonna watch you at work. They're gonna see if you actually live your Christian values and often they're gonna ask you in a moment of crisis about this God that you believe in and you'll earn the right to be heard. Let me ask you, are you earning the right to be heard? I hope so. You're not gonna do it perfectly, we're gonna obviously talk to people about grace, but we wanna earn the right to be heard. And when the days of mourning for him were past, verse four, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh saying, if now i found favor in your sight, please speak to Pharaoh, saying. Now, I don't know if Pharaoh was out of town. I don't know if he was on some sort of venture or he was, you know, he was involved in other stuff. I mean, Joseph is the viceroy of Egypt. In some ways, he was more powerful than the Pharaoh himself. Why does he have to send message? I'm not quite sure, but somehow he has to get word to the Pharaoh. It may just be that he wanted to stay in Goshen with the family and so he sent word by messenger and so now um, he's, he's asking the Pharaoh these following things. My father made me swear, verse five, saying behold I'm about to die. In my grave which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now therefore please let me go up and bury my father then I will return. This is the message from Joseph to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, verse seven, and all the elders of the land of Egypt. Notice the word all, and you have so the servants of the Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt. So this is a huge entourage of all the bigwigs in the land of Egypt are going to accompany Joseph to this burial site. Notice verse eight. All the household of Joseph, the 75 plus people that made the trek there with Jacob, plus those who have been born, etc. All the household of, J- of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household, they left only their little ones, their little children and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen and they went. There also went up with him both chariots and horsemen, this is the military from Egypt, and it was a very great company. So this is kind of, you know, the, the huge group of people, it's a huge company of people that are doing what I would consider a funeral procession here, and they're gonna travel quite a distance. And what's interesting is that they are going to retrace, from what I can tell here, the path of the Exodus. Hundreds of years later, Israel will leave Egypt again, but this time when they leave hundreds of years later under the leadership of Moses, the chariots and horsemen won't be leading a procession for the, the death of Israel. The chariots and horsemen will be chasing them into the Red Sea and God will cause the waters of the Red Sea to cover them. He will deal with horse and rider. If you wanna look at that story, it's found in Exodus chapter 14. But here he has a huge company you know given by the Pharaoh and all the people are heading out and when they came to the threshing floor of Atad verse 10 which is beyond the Jordan they're on the east side of the Jordan they lamented there with a great with a very great and sorrowful lamentation and he observed seven days of mourning for his father. So here's what's happening. Basically, they've come from the land of Egypt. Remember, Egypt is just south of Israel. Canaan, the land of Canaan, becomes the land of Israel. And so Egypt and Israel border each other. So they moved into the border of the the promised land or the land of Canaan, and they, they stopped at a threshing floor, the area of Atad, and there Joseph went into a mourning for seven days. So there's already been a lot of mourning going on and now there's, they set up camp for seven days of mourning and the people of the area, you could say the Canaanites began to witness what was going on. They looked and saw this mourning that went on for his father, Jacob's family, the Egyptian military, the elders, the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, verse 11, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad and they said, this is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. The Egyptians apparently were all mourning as well. Therefore it was named Abel Mitzrayim, which is beyond the Jordan. Now you can look up this phrase and I found a couple of things on it. Some, uh, some um, lexicons say it means Abel Mitzrayim, Mitzrayim means the meadow of Egypt. Uh, but I saw another author that said it probably means the mourning of Egypt as in crying or wailing. And I think that's probably a more accurate way to look at it. And here the people looked and they saw this grievous mourning. Now, you might ask, well, why is there so much mourning going on over the death of Jacob? Because imagine who Jacob is now to the Egyptians. He's the father of the man who saved Egypt. And for that matter, he's the father of the man that saved the world. Joseph, we've been saying, is in many ways a type of Christ and by the dreams that God had given him and by the direction that he had given the Pharaoh and by his leadership in those seven years of plenty and seven years of famine, Joseph really, in many ways, saved the world And the world was saved ultimately so that the Israelite family could be saved so that the Messiah could come, but God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He didn't just love Israel, he loved the world. He loved you and he loved me. And Joseph is a type of Jesus. And when the father Jacob dies here, the the Egyptians are mourning. Now you could ask the question, was it real mourning or were they putting on a show? I don't know for sure, but I do know this. The mourning for the Israelites was real. And when they mourned, they would weep loudly They would lament, they would tear their clothing, they would often put ashes on their head and they would sit with sackcloth and ashes. It was a very serious time. They took this time, uh, you know, really to heart. And it's okay for us to mourn when we lose somebody. You know, sometimes as Christians, I think we feel like we have to move on so quickly and you know, those who are uh, directors of mortuaries are saying that you know, people are moving in and out so quickly that sometimes they don't even have a chance to process and mourn, and it's okay to mourn. Now, we don't mourn, we don't grieve like those who have no hope. Our hope is in the resurrection, our hope is in the truth of heaven. But I want you to see that the Jews were not afraid to mourn the loss. And the process of mourning is needed. It's something that you have to go through. And so it doesn't, it's not just a matter of a day and you're supposed to get over it. And sometimes well-meaning people will say to you with not very good timing, you know, you need to move on or whatever. Look, there's gonna be a time to mourn. There's a time to dance. There's a time to weep. There's a time to enjoy life. There's, there comes a time when you die. There's a time to build and a time to dare, tear down. There's a time for everything under the sun, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Uh, there's an appropriate time for everything, and we need to learn that there's an appropriate time to mourn. Joseph was not afraid to mourn. Now, we're going to watch that there's going to be a time to move on as well. But as I said, it looks like this total time encapsulated at least 70 days of mourning. And so that's a couple of months. And it doesn't mean just because you've mourned that it's over, right? You, could just, you just forget about it. No, you're not going to forget about it. But you're going to need to live again. And it's not always just mourning the death of somebody. Sometimes it's mourning a broken relationship. Sometimes it's mourning a job loss. Sometimes you just have to allow yourself some space and some grace. It's okay. God understands. Sometimes we're quick as people. We mean well. We throw out a Bible verse or we do this or that and we mean well, but you know what? We're not in that person's sandals. And so we give as much grace as we can and just say, you know what, I'm praying for you. And sometimes just a quiet presence is the best thing that we can do. And so this place was named by the people of the land, probably the morning of Egypt. And so uh, the procession parked there for a while. And thus his sons, verse 12, did for him as he had charged them. He did not want to be buried in Egypt and his sons carried him to the land of Canaan. So they would have now had to cross the Jordan River. By the way, um, if you get a chance to go to Israel, the Jordan River is not terribly impressive. It's, it almost looks like a little stream at some places. But but when it's at flood stage, it's it can be very difficult to cross. And so I'm not sure the route that they took for uh, For certain, But they carried him, his remains, across to the land of Canaan, they entered into the promised land, which is a great picture of faith. And they buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field for a burial site from Ephron the Hittite. And so here's the cave where the family members were buried. By faith Abraham purchased the cave, he was buried here. Sarah was buried in the cave. Isaac was buried here. Rebekah was buried here. Jacob's wife Leah was buried here. And now Jacob would join their remains in this place. Uh, they have discovered over the years, uh, as they do excavation projects and even building projects in Israel, many burial sites that they find. And they're often caves or family tombs where they put ossuaries. And an ossuary is just a little bone box. And what the Jews do is they take great care to care for the bones. And so they will move the bones into an ossuary, a bone box is just about yay big, and they'll often find multiple ossuaries in a site where they will uh, you know, have uh, family members all in this one place. And after he buried his father, verse 14, chapter 50, Joseph returned to Egypt. Notice the word after, there's always an after. I've walked many families through uh, the morning process, and uh, you know, going through, trying to make arrangements, and you know there's there's all these this stuff that comes out of family. And then they hold a service. and they they have a chance to reflect and honor that person and remember and share stories and and cry and laugh a little bit. And then there's an after. And the after is the reality of trying to move on and now live life without that person. And that is not an easy process, but there's always an after, and it seems like a, there's a lot of attention that we pay at the kind of the beginning, but the after is often where the best ministry needs to occur. And we're not always good at that, right? But we need to pay attention to people who have gone through something and give them the care that they need even after, make sure that they know we're praying for them, et cetera. And so after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, and his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. There was a time to go back to Egypt, and the time had come. When someone dies, we often experience shock, fear, and even numbness. C.S. Lewis, who wrote a book called A Grief Observed, lost his wife, and he wrote these words, the great uh, apologist for the Christian faith. Once an atheist became a strong believer, He lost his wife and he wrote this on the first page of his journal that he kept for months following her death. He wrote, there's a sort of invisible blanket between the world and me. I find it hard to take in what anyone says or perhaps hard to want to take it in. It is so uninteresting. Yet I want others to be about me. I dread the moments when the house is empty. If only they would talk to one another and not to me. The numbness is like that of a wound healing, James Boyce adds to the words of C.S. Lewis. Uh, Just recently, uh, I got a telephone call and a young man, 19 years old, was killed on the track at Wheaton College in Illinois. And it was a very heart-wrenching thing what I understand of the story is he was helping out on the track. He was a 19-year-old son of missionaries. He had spent his early childhood in Africa. He had a deep desire to be a pastor. He was helping out on the track and they were doing a hammer throw and the hammer got away from one of the contestants and it, he took a blow on the track and, and uh, died at the hospital but he was, for all intents and purposes, he was dead there on the track at 19. And it was a very devastating blow to the people at the college and and you know folks that were there maybe they didn't even see what happened directly but they experienced the shock of someone dying in that way and if you've ever experienced that you know a little bit of what they're talking about you know maybe a car accident happens or something happens and all of a sudden you you have shock and you have to deal with it and it's not easy and so there's a time after the shock and fear and even numbness there's going to be a time of what writers who deal with grief call adjustment and adaptation. There's a time of a fresh focus. There's a time to be enriched in the presence and promises of God. There's a time to cross back over the Jordan and start again. That time is not always easily discernible, by the way. And it's gonna be different for everybody to get a fresh focus and start to focus on life again and move ahead and count your blessings and rest in the promises of God for that loss that you've gone through. And so that's, that's the story, that's the first half of this story. Dad has been put in the cave, he's been buried, and they've taken the route of the Exodus, they've, they've returned back to Egypt, and for those brothers, to my knowledge, as they peered on the promised land, uh, they would never see that land again in their lifetime. So everything was being done by faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. Now when Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, verse 15, they said, what if Joseph should bear a grudge against us and pay us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? Now the brothers had kind of an epiphany moment. They said, okay, dad's dead, we've we've gotten through the funeral, we've done the mourning thing, and now they kind of thought, you know what, I wonder if this last seventeen years if Joseph has just been nice to us for the sake of dad. And you know, you get different takes on this. And some some say, you know, how could they even think this? You know, what could have come into their mind? Joseph was nothing but gracious to them. He had had even told them, look, I believe that everything that happened, I ended up here because of God. I was sold here because of God. God was the one. He tried to ease their fear and even lighten their conscience, but for some reason they didn't believe it and maybe that's because they never really went through a formal process of ownership and asking Joseph for forgiveness. There was a lot of tears and maybe even unspoken things, but not a real true record of I'm so sorry for what I did to you and an extension of forgiveness. I think Joseph had forgiven them, but they were wondering, is he still bearing a grudge? Has he completely buried the hatchet? We all struggle with grudges, don't we? You know, the old saying is people say they buried the hatchet, they're gonna forget about what you did to them, but they leave the handle sticking out just in case they need the hatchet again, right? And we can say that we've forgiven people and people can think that we've forgiven them, but as time goes by, sometimes we're not always sure if that's true. And once dad was dead, maybe they, they thought, well, he's only being nice to us for the sake of dad, and now he's truly gonna get his revenge. And so this is what was stirring up amongst the brothers. When Joseph had told them in chapter 45 about you know not to be grieved, he said, don't be angry with yourselves, don't be grieved because you sold me here. God sent me before you to preserve life. He sent me here to keep you alive for this Great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. But for, for them, maybe those were nice words, but have you ever had words spoken to you, but you're not quite sure that you can let them totally sink in? Like, I know what this person just said to me, but mm, I just don't know. And so they're wondering now, what's gonna happen? So they sent a message to Joseph, and it came by email. This is what the Hebrew says. No, just kidding, it wasn't an email. And they said, your father charged before he died and said these words. Thus you shall say to Joseph, this is what dad said, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression, transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. They said, hey, by the way, just in case you didn't know this, dad left a message for you after this happens, after he died, he wanted you to know to please forgive us of everything we did, the wrong we did to you, okay? Okay. (laughs) Now, we don't know if Jacob ever came up with something like that. We don't know, there's no record that Jacob ever said that, and if he would have said it, why didn't he just say it directly to Joseph? There was nothing in his behavior that would have caused fear in the brothers, he did nothing but take care of them. Yet at the same time, we know that Jacob had a brother who bore a grudge against him, and his name was Esau. And when Esau realized that he had stolen the blessing, he bore a grudge, and he said, when dad dies, I'm going to get my revenge on my brother. And that went on for what, some 20 years and so it is possible Jacob, thinking about his own brother and that relationship, might have said something. But we're not quite sure. But this is the message that comes to Joseph, and Joseph, when he hears it, look. I want you to see the. There's some good ownership taken, verse 17. And this is how we need to apologize to people. Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin. There's no darting around it. They don't say. Forgive us, we have issues, you know, we had dysfunction in the the household. No, they call it transgression, they call it sin. They said, we did you wrong, and now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. There's some appeal to familial relationships. And Joseph's response was, he wept. Why do you think he wept after he heard that? I mean, this is conjecture, but do you think he wept because he thought to himself, Haven't I proven to you guys that many years ago I had forgiven you? Do you still think I'm holding a grudge? Maybe that's what he felt. Maybe he wept because finally he heard a true um, ownership from his brothers. Maybe finally he said, these guys have finally called it what it is, sin, that they've, they wronged me, they kind of danced around it, they didn't take full ownership and it is refreshing when someone finally says to you, you know, I did you wrong, I'm so sorry for what I did to you. And when that happens, there's an opportunity for healing and even an opportunity for tears. Had the brothers forgiven themselves? You know, maybe because they didn't go through the process of owning it and asking for forgiveness, their conscience still bothered them over these last 17 years. Had they not forgiven themselves for what they had done? There's all kinds of layers here, but here's the best way to deal with stuff. Own it, bring it into the light, ask for forgiveness, and move on. Right? If we don't do that, if we sweep things under the carpet, then they end up coming up at some point in a pile of dust. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Now, he had some pretty good opportunity here when they came and knelt down. He could have said, yeah, just stay there for 21 days. 21 days sounds good. Just grovel fast. I'm going to give it to you now. This, This man was probably the most powerful man in the world. These last 17 years, he could have done whatever he wanted to these men. In some ways, he was more powerful than the Pharaoh, and he had not done anything to them, and he wasn't going to do anything now. Here's what Joseph says to them He says, Don't be afraid. Many times in the Gospels, Jesus said that to his apostles. Don't be afraid. Notice, am I in God's place? Joseph, who was this great world leader, said, Don't be afraid, bros. I'm not God. I'm not going to be, you know, determining your fate here or meting out punishment. I am not in God's place. I am not God. We might want to just revisit that every now and then. Because even though theologically we believe it, sometimes we want to play God in people's lives. In fact, I think sometimes we believe if we could just be God for a day, we could straighten out a lot of messes in this world. A lot of people who wear clothing that doesn't match, and stuff like that. Just kidding. But we we think, hey, you know what, if I could just do this, or let me tell you, here's what you should do, and we start to play God, and some of our relationships pay the price. We need to let God be God. And sometimes we get ourselves in trouble when we want to ride in on the white horse and rescue everybody. That's called enabling. And we we ride in for the rescue and we try to play God and sometimes we've talked in the office several times that maybe we get in God's way by trying to rescue someone when they need to hit rock bottom or they need to hear from the Lord. It's not always easy to discern these things is it but Joseph said I'm not God and I'm not going to play God. Don't be afraid. I'm not in God's place. Don't be afraid. We need to treat each other with patience and humility and compassion and kindness. This is how God treats us, right? He says, as for you, this is chapter 50, verse 20, and I've suggested to you, as we've moved through the book of Genesis and we're coming to a close, that this may be the theme verse of the book of Genesis. As for you, Joseph says to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, everything that's happened, in order to bring about this present result and to preserve many people alive. Genesis 50, verse 20, New Living Translation, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many, many people. Joseph had experienced the jealousy, the hatred, the betrayal of his brothers, the cruelty and lies of a leading woman of Egypt, the forgetfulness of a man who said, I'll remember you, I'll tell the Pharaoh about you, who failed to live up to his words. All of it was evil, all of it was wrong, all of it shouldn't have been done, and we have a saying in our culture, it's all good. And I know what we're saying when we're saying it's all good, bro, but I have news for you. It's not all good. Some things are just downright evil. But God is so majestic in his attributes that he can take the evil that people intend and use it, exploit it for his good purposes. When someone commits an evil and God turns it together for good, it doesn't mean that they're not culpable for their evil. In in the Bible, when you're looking at these things in terms of just understanding your worldview, here's what happens. Culpability remains. Judas Iscariot was culpable for his betrayal of Jesus, even though it was prophesied in the Bible. He was culpable. The predetermined plan of God was the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, yet Pilate was culpable. The religious leadership Jesus said, "Those who turn me over to you have the greater sin." They had sinned against Almighty God, they were culpable. yet God is so majestic in His ways that He can exploit even the evil intentions of men, for the glory of God and for the good of those who love Him." Romans 8:28 is the New Testament version of Genesis 50 verse 20, and it says, "God causes. How many? How many? all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. God causes all things to work together for good. Not all things are good, but God works them together for good. The Greek word in Romans 8.28 for working together is Sunergeo, where we get the English word synergism or synergistic, It was a buzzword in corporate America for different departments and so forth, working together for a common goal. What God does is he weaves together a tapestry from all the junk and the mire. He's so majestic in his ways that he can work it together for good. Years ago, there was an elderly minister who God gave a marvelous ability to minister to the sick and distressed of his church. He had an old bookmark and he carried it with with him in his Bible. It was made of silk threads woven into a motto. The back of it where the ends of the threads uh, were knotted and tied was a hopeless tangle and mangled mess. When he visited a home in which there was some great trouble, sudden sickness, sorrow or death, where believers were puzzled by what God was doing in their lives, he would often show them the bookmark, first presenting the side with the tangle of threads. After the befuddled parishioner examined it in vain, the pastor would turn it over. On the front side, standing out in colored threads against the white background was the motto, God is love. So it is in this life. We live through events that seem to be tangled and meaningless, but they appear that way only because we cannot see a pattern. When we see life from God's side, his message of love and providence shines through. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. He works all things together for good, not some, but all. That means the childhood stuff you've been through, the car you drive, or the lack thereof, (laughs) the home you live in, your furniture, or the lack thereof, (laughs) your looks, your abilities, your trials, your disappointments, your pain, your sorrows, your victories, your grief. The list is really inexhaustible. He works, how many? All things together for good to those who love him. God causes this because God is good and he works it all together for good. Now how he does it, sometimes I look from the bottom on this planet and say, man, this is a tangled, mangled mess. But somewhere up above, the message comes through. God is love. And for me to see life through his eyes is one of my great (laughs) challenges. Every day, I ask him, God, give me your glasses. (laughs) I wanna see 2020 spiritually. And so many things muddy my vision. So many things, you know, sometimes distract my gaze or get convoluted in my thinking because this world can be a messy place. It's just a messy place. But God took Joseph and, you know, Joseph didn't go through some light stuff. He went through some very difficult things. You know, Jesus, when he was getting ready to die, he said, my soul is troubled. He said, I'm gonna be betrayed he had a heaviness on him and then he turned that heaviness back on his disciples and blessed them by saying, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. You know, Jesus was the one facing the cross and if you think about Joseph, why is Joseph comforting his brothers? He's the one that was wrong. Why is he telling them, don't be afraid? Why is he going to tell them, I'll take care of you? Why is he going to appeal to this majesty of God? Why should anybody do that? Why should you do that? Why should you forgive? Why should you say, oh, I believe that God's gonna work this together for good, because God wants you to see life through his eyes. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means that you're living on a higher plane. Even when you're going through difficulty, even when you have a health crisis or a loss that you've been through, God will weave his providential hand into the situation. What is the doctrine of providence? The doctrine of providence tells us that the world and our lives are not ruled by fate. They are ruled by God. Let me say that one more time. The doctrine of providence tells us that the world and our lives are not ruled by fate. They are ruled by God. Now, some of you are saying, but wait a minute, Pastor Michael. You just said there was an accident on the track, and you know we could draw parallels all over the board. What about a football player carrying the ball, and he gets knocked out, and Maybe he dies. What about a baseball player and a 98-mile-an-hour fastball hits him in the temple and he dies? How do you make sense of that? Here's what I would say to you. That was an accident. It was an accident. Uh, I shared this with a group. I'm not sure if I shared it with you guys recently, but David Jeremiah, pastor in San Diego, very well-known pastor, was asked by a congregant, why did you get cancer? You're a pastor. How could you get cancer? And Jeremiah said, I got cancer because I'm human. We live in a fallen world. It can be a very messy place. Accidents happen, things happen. God does not say in his divine providence, I'm gonna spare you from everything. I'm I'm not gonna allow the, the things that come at you in life to hit you or hurt you. What God does say is that I'm gonna take them and still weave them together for good. This, the ultimate sign where he did this was at the cross, where he took the most evil thing that ever could have happened on the planet to his own son, and he made it for our greatest good. That's the providence of God. It doesn't mean that bad things won't happen. They happen every day on this planet. But it means that God ultimately is gonna work them together for good. He lays bare his purposes, says one author, Uh, of providence and the incarnation of his son. And more than that, I will add, he lays bare his purposes of providence when we see the reality of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says in verse 21, therefore, don't be afraid. Some of you need to mark that tonight. You can live Genesis 50, verse 20. You can know that even though somebody meant it for evil, God worked it together for good. Let me just say this to you. If our faith can't work in real life, then I don't know what we're doing. If our faith can't work on our marriages when we're not getting along, I don't know what we're doing. If our faith can't work when we go through a crisis or a trial, then I'm not quite sure what we're doing because we're not just in here to talk about theological ideas, right? Right? We could go to a classroom and do that. We could do that anywhere. You can can read books for the next thousand years. I've got most of them in my library. You wanna go into my library? They're all in there and I have not read them all. People look at my library, have you read all these books? Nope. (laughs) I've read a lot of them. I've read portions of a lot of them. But these are not just concepts and ideas. This is the stuff of life. What separates you from the normal person who goes through the junk is whether or not you can see above it, and I'm not talking about the fact that you're in the middle of the crisis, you're just gonna be some strong pillar and oak. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that your faith is gonna be real when the Jacobs die, and the Potiphar's wives falsely accuse you, and you end up in prison, and somebody tells you they'll remember you, and then they don't. That's what Genesis 50:20 is all about. But Joseph was able to do that largely looking back what you meant for evil. But when he was in the pit, I'm not sure he was quoting Genesis 50, verse 20. Because it didn't exist yet. Amen? I know what you mean for evil. God intends for good. No, he was crying in the pit. Let me out of here. I wish I handled uh, I have Genesis 50 verse 20 memorized along with Romans 8:28, but I don't always live it. Sometimes when I'm in the pit, I just cry and whine like the rest of us, right? Oh, what are you doing? And sometimes when you resist Potiphar's wife and you're still in prison, that's when you do some whining, some more, and you say, "God, I did the right thing. How? Could you do this? To me. You know who I am, right? <laughs> oh yeah. He knows. He knows who you are. Romans 8:28 is a marvelous verse, but be careful when you quote it. Because if you quote Romans 8:28 at the wrong time, you may get hit with a family Bible in your coconut. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> there's a key to timing. But I think sometimes what happens is the devil robs us of the power of the verse because sometimes we're afraid to make it our own. God, Sometimes we quote it like this. God causes all things to work together. Right? But there's a verse that follows it. He's doing something else. He's conforming us, Romans 8.29, into the image of his son, and his son was even perfected through suffering, wow, on the human side the book of Hebrews tells us that of Jesus Christ great lessons, and so Joseph says don't be afraid, see if I can get my device to turn (laughs) God causes all things together to work for good (laughs) to work together for good He says, I will provide for you, don't be afraid, 21, and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. That's an amazing man. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, 22, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Now Joseph did live a long life, he was blessed by God. His grandpa Abraham lived to 175, his great grandpa Abraham. His grandpa Isaac died at 180, his father Jacob lived to 147. We can see that ages do seem to reduce down and 110 seems to be a long life at this point. So he lived 110 years. I mentioned 93 of it in Egypt. And Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons. Also the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. So Joseph got to uh, experience grandchildren and it was a great blessing to him. And now we fast forward to the end of Joseph's life in the end of the book. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised an oath to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear. He said, God will surely take care of you. Notice two statements of faith at the end of Joseph's life. And you shall carry my bones up from here. And so Joseph died at the age of 110 years. And he was embalmed and placed in a coffin. Literally here, the Hebrew is the coffin. So many believe this is a sarcophagus for the elite of Egypt. And he died and was put in the coffin. And you remember that uh, even though he requested that his bones not remain in Egypt, um, he was carried out many years later in the Exodus. It would be Moses who would carry his bones out of Egypt when God came in the Exodus, and then it would be Joshua who would finally carry his bones into the Promised Land, because Moses did not enter the Promised Land, but Joshua did. And the promises were fulfilled by faith, and many of these famous characters in the Bible saw them from a distance. They saw the Passover, the first Passover from a distance. There's been a type of a second Passover. That's for us. Jesus is our Passover lamb, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. By his blood, we've been removed out of Egypt, out of the taskmaster's whip, and we've come into the promises of God. And I would suggest to you there's gonna be a third Passover God is gonna return again. He's gonna pass over this world in judgment and the ones who will be saved are the ones who belong to Jesus Christ. And so this book from Genesis to Exodus will move from the beginnings to the departure from the land of Egypt. And you and I have experienced this beautiful Exodus and we look forward to a final Passover or Exodus from this planet. And right now we're looking at the promises but we kind of see them sometimes from a distance. And so we need to be able to tonight hopefully just take a few moments to make Genesis 50, verse 20, our own. Maybe to stand once again freshly on Romans 8:28, And know these are promises that God has given to you and to me. It's been an amazing journey through the book of Genesis, hasn't it? <laughs> God is good. He's taught us a lot of things. And I pray that you will make them your own and be able to live them out through faith. Father, we, uh, we're just so grateful for the Bible. It's so rich, it's so important, it's so illuminating. It's also comforting, and sometimes it's uncomfortable, frankly, but comforting at the same time. And as we look at it tonight, Lord, we, we wanna remember the glory that you have revealed along the way to different people that we can resonate with, they were human, They were like us, they went through their pain and sorrow and question marks, and yet they were able to die in faith and look to the promises, and Joseph today is alive. Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, all of them are alive, and one day we will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. We will meet Joseph one day, and we will rejoice in the resurrection. This is the promise. That is coming it's there's going to be a New Jerusalem, a new promised land and we know that is sure because you promised it and you are always true to your promises. So whatever may be going on in each of our individual lives tonight, Lord, may your promises, may your word, may your the power of your Holy Spirit encourage, strengthen, and minister to each one tonight. If you have not made Christ your Savior and Lord with your heart and head bowed, open up your heart to him. Say, Lord, I wanna trust you with the tangled, mangled mess that sometimes I see created in my life. Maybe you wanna rededicate your life. It's something like this. Jesus, I believe. I believe you are God. I believe you came into this world to die for me and to rise. I put my full trust in you as my Lord and my Savior. I repent of my sin, and I put my trust in you. Forgive me, Lord, cleanse me, and make me new. Lord, for those who have reached out to you in prayer, may you meet them, may you remove their burdens, may you bless their lives. May you wash over this congregation with the beauty of your, your spirit. In Jesus' holy name I pray, amen.